And so as we, of course, start this new sermon series on worship, one of the things that we want to recognize or make sure that we are aware of is that's what we've gathered here together to do today. This is a worship service. A lot of times we may get in the car, somebody asks you where are you going, and you say, well, I'm going to church, right? But we're not going to church. We are the church. If we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we are adopted into his family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We are the church, and the church has gathered together today for a worship service, to be led by him, to worship and glorify him. But I got to tell you up front, guys, that it is possible for you and I to actually be here every single Sunday in a worship service and never actually worship. It's possible because worship is a response on our part to who God is and what it is that he has done. To respond to something means we participate in it. To participate in something means to take part in it. And so to worship means that we've participated in the worship service. The opposite of participating in something is to watch it like it's a performance, right? I mean, there was there were people up here. There was a band performing on a stage just a second ago. I'm up here on a stage doing some speaking. There are things that happen up here. And a lot of times when people are on a stage, we treat it like it is a performance. We come to watch the people perform. And so when we leave, a lot of times we talk to our friends and we talk to our family about how well we were entertained that day, how much I entertained you through the message, whether I was funny or whether it was deep or whatever it is that you thought about it that day or, you know, the same thing about the band. And so it's possible for us to come and to sit here during a worship service and watch it like it is a performance and never actually participate in it. And if worship requires our participation, then it is possible to be here every single Sunday in a worship service and never actually worship. And that is no small thing because worship matters to God. We know that God says that he is a jealous God. He tells Moses that in Exodus. We know in Isaiah 46, 8, God says, I am the Lord and I will not yield my glory to another. It seems like glorifying the Lord, giving him the worship that he is due, is a big deal to him. He desires our attention. He wants our focus on him. He is at work in our lives to lead us to respond to who he is as our Lord and creator in worship. And so again, worship really does matter. It matters to God. But even if we start to get that, that worship really does matter, we start to get that it involves participation, then one of the questions that might arise is how? How am I supposed to participate? What does it look like for me to really 
worship. How does the Spirit lead us in worship? What are the best ways to respond to who God is and to bring Him glory and honor? Do I worship with my head? Do I worship with my heart? Should we sing hymns? Should we sing praise songs? Should a choir be out here? Or is it better to have a band up here? What do I do with my hands? Should I leave them by my side, put them in my pockets? Is there anything else that I should do? What about my voice? I mean, do I sing? Do I say stuff? I mean, what, what do we do when we gather for a worship service? And so when we think about this, there are matters of worship for us to consider. The word matters can be a verb, as again, worship matters to God. But then there are matters of worship that we see in Scripture. And so because, again, worship matters to God and because there are various matters of worship found in His words, that's why we're calling this new message series Worship Matters. And so today, as we begin and dive into one of those matters of worship, we're going to see that this, at first glance, seems to be a little bit kind of in, in conflict. There seems to be a little bit of a contradiction between what we're going to be talking about. It's probably caused a number of arguments. I know it has in the church over the last 20 or 30 years, especially when it comes to this matter of worship. And it's the idea of whether we approach God in worship as um, one who is um, reverent, like we approach him in reverence and awe, or whether we approach him more like a friend. Is he an exalted, sovereign God that we stand in reverence of as we worship? Or is he more like a friend who's someone who's near and we feel is with us when we worship? Another way to kind of ask the question, is God a transcendent God? Is he high and exalted above and independent from creation? Or is God an imminent God? Is he near? Is he involved in the matters of affairs here on earth and with us? And, and so how you answer this question on your view of God or what's true about him will define ultimately or usually how it is that we worship. If you view God as a transcendent God, it will lead you into one way of approaching worship with him. If you view him as an imminent God, it usually leads you into a different type of approach when you worship God. So when we look at this question, it's no small thing. We want to get this thing right. We want to know who God really is, so we'll know how to approach him in worship and to give him glory and honor. So I want to dive into his word to look for the answer to this question, and I want to do so in a part of scripture where we see people gathering together for worship, and these two things come out. I'm going to be in the book of Nehemiah in our Old Testament today. We're going to be looking at chapter 8, and we're going to look at the first 12 verses, and this is the way that it begins in verse 1. It says, when the seventh month came, and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So, it might help as we dive into this to have a little bit of background information to know the context of what it is that we're looking at here. And this is the point in time 
where a lot of the Israelites began to return home to Jerusalem. They had been taken into captivity by the Babylonians because of their disobedience to God, but God, out of his mercy, has started to allow them to return home. And in Ezra, who was mentioned in here, had brought some of the Israelites back home. And then we see earlier in Nehemiah that Nehemiah was allowed to come back and, and, and take on this task of rebuilding the wall to secure the city, to secure the area around the temple. And the wall does get finished, it does get built, and now they're coming together as Israelites. And this is where we are picking up with them gathering together before the Lord. So they've gathered together, they've got the book of the law, let's see what happens. Verse 2 says, So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform, stage, if you will, built for the occasion. And then Ezra opened the book. All of the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up and then they clapped and they cheered for how well Ezra was performing for them. Is that what it says? Not what it says. It says, Ezra praised the Lord. Ezra began to worship the Lord. And then what happened? He says, worshiping the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, amen, amen. In other words, they began to participate. They began to participate in worship. They didn't just sit there and watch him. They were led to respond. Now, how is it that they responded? Well, we see a couple of things in here. The very first thing that we see is that they lifted their hands. As Ezra began to praise and worship the Lord, they felt led to express worship through the lifting of their hands. What's that all about? You guys have gathered together before in worship, and you've seen some people raising their hands and may have wondered, what are they doing? Why do some people even do that kind of thing? Well, raising your hands, and people do that for a number of reasons. The, the raising of our hands symbolizes a lot of different things, right? You guys who have small children, you have them coming up to you all the time, and they're raising their hands in this way. And what do they mean by that? I need your help. I need you. Pick me up, right? And so if we come before God as his children and we're holding our hands up in this way, we're saying to God, I need you. There's something that you have. There's something that only you can provide for me and I can't find anywhere else. Lord, I need you. And it's an expression of worship to him in this particular manner. Well, we all know that when people hold both hands up over their head, that's kind of the universal sign of what? I surrender. I give up, right? And so if we come before the Lord, we're saying, hey, I 
surrender if we're raising our hands. I give up. I yield to you as the authority in my life for you to be the one to lead me and guide me and empower me instead of me trying to do it in my own power and my own strength and my own might. I surrender, right? A lot of times, if you were to go to court, you would see someone also have to raise their right hand. And when they do, they're testifying to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, right? And so to raise one hand might mean that you're testifying that that is true, right? What that person is saying or what they're reading out of Scripture or, oh my gosh, the lyrics that we're singing right now, that is true. I'm raising my hand to show I believe that and I affirm that to be true in my life as well. And so these are some of the ways that the Lord might lead us in an expression of worship to him to say, man, I need you, or I surrender, I yield to you, or yes, I testify that you are God, you are holy, you are whatever it is that we are singing about. So that's one way that they felt led to respond here. The other one was with their voices. They were yelling amen right he's praising the lord and they're responding so be it so be it with their voices yes that is true and a lot of times he might lead us to do the same things to worship him with our words to be in agreement with whatever is being said or whatever it is that we are singing about but that's not all we go on in verse six and see another way in which they were led to worship says here that then, after that, they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Wow. Now that right there, I mean, bowing down with your face all the way to the ground, that is a position of humility right that's a position of you respect the one that you are before quite honestly a lot of times that's a position of awe and fear right i am i am in the presence of someone that i don't deserve to be in i have got to fall on my face before him well why would they feel led to worship the lord in that particular way well in short because of God's transcendence. Ezra's reading from the book of the law. He's revealing truth to them, and they're starting to see clearly or be reminded of who God really is, that he's a God who exists above and independent of creation. He's wholly other than they were right? And this is an appropriate spot when you recognize that God is transcendent. It's not just here, it's all over Scripture. Deuteronomy 4, acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. There's no other God. He's the only one. Uh, Moses asked to see God's glory. He goes, you don't really want that, right? You can't see my face for no one may live, right? May see me and live. I don't know anyone else like that, that I can't see and not live, right? That's because of his transcendence, who he is. Uh, Isaiah 55, God says, For my thoughts are not 
your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts um, than your thoughts. His higher, above, exalted. He's different than we are. He exists independently of who we are in his creation, high and exalted. One author puts it this way. It's a little bit lengthy, but man, I think it just really captures the transcendence of God and what we're talking about. He says, God is other and set apart from everything else. He is in a class by himself. God is not just quantitatively greater than us, but qualitatively different in his greatness. He is transcendent, infinitely above or beyond us. The true God is distinct. He's set apart from all that he has made as the only truly self-sufficient being. He goes on, says all his creatures depend on him. He alone exists from within himself. And the true God is distinct, set apart from all that is evil. His moral perfection is absolute. His character as expressed in his will forms the absolute standard of moral excellence. God is Holy, the absolute point of reference for all that exists and is good. Listen to this. Across the board, he is to be contrasted with his creatures. At heart, he is a glowing white center of absolute purity. This is our Lord. This is our creator. So why were the Israelites bowing down in fear and awe before him? Because this is the God they were recognizing they were in the presence of. It is an appropriate response when you see that God is transcendent and holy and set apart and distinct and different than you are. Now, again, this isn't the only way that they were led. As we continue and pick up just a few verses later, it says, Then, so next, we're continuing as they're gathering together, Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as what? As they listened to the words of the law being read. They were gathered together. The words of the law were being read. As they were being led, apparently they felt led to begin to weep. It caused them to begin to weep and grieve and mourn when this was happening. Why? Why did they have so much grief in this particular moment? Well, in short, because the law was doing what it was intended to do. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 3.20, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The law in the Old Testament is a reflection of the transcendent character of God, the holiness of God. It shows how perfect and awesome and distinct he really is. And so the law was doing what it was designed to do, to show people standing before a transcendent and holy God that they don't have a chance. 
There is no way they have a chance and shouldn't be standing before him right now. So to grieve and to mourn and to wail when you come to that realization, again, is an appropriate expression of worship or a place to find yourself in in that moment if you're a sinner standing before a holy and a transcendent God. It's an appropriate response in that particular moment. But what was, again, really interesting um, there too is that they are being commanded not to mourn or weep. It was appropriate in the beginning. I mean, it was an appropriate response to the realization of those things. But now that that has happened, they're saying, but do not mourn or weep. You go on and see him say a little bit more about this in the next few verses. Nehemiah said, go, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people saying, be still for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy. There was rejoicing. Why? Because now they understood the words that had been made known to them. Quite a different response than what we read about a second ago fear, reverence, awe, trembling, you know, respect, bowing down, faces to the ground, celebration, joy. That sounds like a party now, right? Why? Because of God's imminence, because he is near. This was a time when uh, they were beginning to celebrate the Feast of Trumpets, and God had commanded them to celebrate a lot of these different festivals, and without going into a lot of detail, just in general, the idea behind this was so that they would remember it would remember as they go into these festivals the great acts of salvation that their God had performed with their people throughout their history together. That he had rescued them and redeemed them and brought them out of the situations that they were in. And listen, the only way that God could save people is if he was imminent if he was near, if he was present with people, if he was involved in the affairs of the world and with people, if he was dwelling with people. And, and so we see that in the way that they're supposed to celebrate and have joy to be reminded of his imminence and what it was that he was doing in their own lives. But we also know this to be true in other parts of Scripture. I mean, all the way at the very beginning of your Bible, we're told that God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. He was involved with them. He was near. We see it in a lot of other places. We won't dive into all, a lot of them, but I'll just give you one. That David, he, he describes God's eminence this way. Where can I go from your spirit? 
where can I flee from your presence? The implied answer there is nowhere, right? He goes on, if I go to the heavens, yep, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, oh yeah, you're there too. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. He's describing God's eminence his omnipresence as well and that he's everywhere he's near he's involved with his creation and so again this is what the israelites were kind of asking to be reminded of or or what the lord was reminding them of his act of salvation his eminence that they were they were near and it was such a different reaction so one way we see them being led in worship to be reverent, again, in awe, bow down in fear, and all of those things that we talked about. Why? Because of his transcendence. But we also see that God is imminent, and that caused them to celebrate and rejoice. And they were even commanded to do those things because of his imminence. So again, if we're looking and trying to answer and ask the question, is God transcendent or imminent? Of course, as you've seen here, the answer is yes. God is transcendent. He is completely different. From, he's above and beyond in, in one sense, exalted high above you and I and independent from creation. But at the same time, he is near. He is involved with us as his creation. And it gets even better for those of us on this side of the cross than those in the Old Testament that we're reading about, that we're gathering together for worship because we see the ultimate example of God's imminence in Him coming to earth and what we read about in John chapter 1 because he says the Word, which is a reference to Jesus, became flesh and made His dwelling where? Among us. It was Emmanuel, God with us. After his life, he willingly took all of the sins of the world and experienced this sacrificial death on the cross where he paid the penalty for all of those sins. He experienced a resurrection and then ascension back to heaven, sent the Holy Spirit, and now living on that side of his finished work of the cross, when you and I put our faith and trust in him for salvation, the Spirit comes to dwell in us, we're told in Ephesians 1.13. And that Spirit means that we're united with the Lord with him one with him in spirit you talk about in intimacy you talk about him being imminent right and then we're told by Paul in Romans eight fifteen that this spirit that we received and that we're in union with that what happens is that we were brought about into an adoption to sonship and he says and by him we are able to cry Abba we're able to cry father to him not just Lord sovereign exalted transcendent God but family father right and because you and I get to experience this time period that we live in being on this side of the cross we get to experience God in an incredibly intimate way in the same way that a child can crawl up into the laps of his dad and receive a hug and an embrace for him and hear the words I love you son I love you daughter and Yes, I love you too, Father. And so we see these truths are both, or these things are both true about God. He is transcendent. He is imminent. 
So as we finish up and before we begin to actually finish worshiping today, not saying this isn't worship, we're worshiping through his word, but as we continue to do so, what does it practically look like? What is understanding and realizing that God is both transcendent and he's imminent? How does that practically play out in expressions of worship? Well, before we get into that, I think the first thing that we have to realize, what this could mean to some of us practically today, because we did see this in the very beginning, that when Ezra stood before the people and began to worship and praise the Lord, what did the people do? They responded. They began to participate in worship. Maybe the Lord has brought you here today and one of the things that he's trying to show you is that he's leading you to actually begin to participate in worship because you're starting to realize that most of the time you actually show up on Sundays, you're just here watching a performance giving everybody grades on how well it is that they're doing up there on the stage, right? And there's very little singing, there's no hand raising, there's no voice that's being carried out in any particular way. When we're praying, there's no praying, there's no agreement with the prayer. When we're giving, maybe there's no giving an act of worship whenever the Lord's leading us in that way. Whenever someone is preaching, we're not really listening for what the Lord is trying to say to us and how it applies to our lives today. And we're going, okay, if that's where I'm at, then maybe the way this applies to me today is that I need to make myself willing to the Lord and say, okay, I'm available. I have not been participating to actually worship you. I've just been showing up at a worship service and acting like it was a performance. So maybe that's the first way that it applies to you and you're just, okay, I'm gonna step in and lean in. Now, what does that look like? Well, for those of us who are used to participating, chances are, not always, but chances are that we lean one direction with transcendence or eminence. We view God as being a little more transcendent, high, exalted, above, and if that's the case, then we approach worship, we should be a little bit more orderly, right? It should be orderly and we should be reverent before him and maybe that comes out in the way that you even dress and maybe that comes out in the way that you do things with your hands or you bow or you're just very careful about the things that we're doing here, right? And then those of you who may view God, oh man, he's, man, he's my friend, he's with me and we're in this relationship and I'm in an intimate relationship with him and it's approachable and I'm raising my hands and I'm clapping and I'm joicing and whatever but, but we're not really coming before the Lord and recognizing that he's high, exalted and above and other than in any reverence or way, then maybe what God is wanting to do today is for us to recognize that we're viewing him maybe leaning a little bit one way or the other and causing us to come back and say, okay, if he's both transcendent and imminent, then he's leading me in worship to find ways to express and worship him in awe and reverence. But he's also leading me in his eminence to clap and rejoice and to raise my hands and to be happy and to, to party, if you will, at the same time. And those things contradictory. How can we do both of those things? Well, if that's who God is and if the Spirit dwells in us and he's leading us to worship, I think he's able to do that because that's a reflection of who he is, right? You and I are going, okay, I don't know. So my encouragement to you today is, all right, if you've been approaching worship 
a little bit more with God as reverent and awe. Never really raised your hands in worship. I don't know how much it is that you're singing. Maybe he's leading you to go, you know what? I'm going to step out of my comfort zone. And if the Lord's leading me to raise my hands, I'm going to raise my hands and go, I need you, right? Or I surrender. I make myself a better. Man, I testify. What I'm singing about right now, that is true, right? This isn't a show. We're not doing it for anybody else, but it's just the Spirit of God is moving me and my body in this way to worship him in this particular moment. Maybe it's to clap or any of those kinds of things, and if that's normal for you and you're used to those things, then maybe today he's leading you to kneel. (laughs) Maybe he's leading you to fall on your face and bow down before him today, or to, to just bow your head and to reflect on who he is as the high and exalted God who's holy and distinct and set apart and different than you are as well in whatever combination of those things and however they interplay and interact into your life and then finally if you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus and you've seen us talking about and showing you how the people finally became aware of God and who he really is and his transcendence and they're weeping and they're mourning and they're grieving why because when you come to realize who the true God is and who you are as a sinner before him that's an appropriate response oh my gosh I've got a problem there's nothing that I can do to make up for that right and to just weep and mourn but then to begin to oh but he's imminent and through the person and work of Jesus Christ, he's offering me a gift of salvation and that's something that I can receive today and maybe that's how this applies to you. What he's leading you to do in this time of response is to to accept him, put your faith and trust in him and then begin to worship him and celebrate him because of the act of salvation that he's uh, doing in your life even as we speak in this particular moment.